At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. to the Cryptid Keeper podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And Alex made me spit my coffee out. <laughs> I, well, okay. That that makes it sound like I was like telling you that you couldn't have coffee. Like, like a mean teacher makes you spit your gum out. That's not what happened. What happened is I was just too funny. <laughs> and, and that's co- not a crime. No, it's not. Not yet. Um, Not yet. <laughs> but it did catch me by surprise, and I did. I was in the middle of drinking a sip of coffee. Uh, it's fine. Here we are. I am having a, um, hey, Bones Coffee Company, please get at me for a sponsorship. I would love that. Um, I am currently enjoying a cup of the Highland Grog blend, which has, like, notes of, like, vanilla and, like, caramel and, like, nice stuff. Don't you say another damn word until they give us money. All right, you're right. <laughs> Nothing else. We're not giving out that free sponsorship. Also, I don't want to keep hearing about your gourmet coffee when I'm just drinking the same coffee I've been drinking all day. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's okay. Over Christmas, I bought, like, a sample pack of flavors, and Mm -hmm. that's what I've been making my way through. And, like, their sample bags... Okay, I shouldn't talk anymore because they're not giving us money, but their sample bags are super big. I'm done now. I'm sorry. Unnamed coffee company that I'm drinking. Yeah, this is just straight up starting to sound like an advertisement where you're like, and you Mm -hmm. know what's weird is that their sample sizes are extremely generous. (laughs) Also, their customer service is fantastic. Like, no, no, none of that. No. If they want that, they're going to have to pay for it. Give us your money, please. Okay. I'm sorry. Money, please. Money, please. I am, but I am caffeinated and I am very happy about that and happy to be here with you again in this space. Good. Yeah. Uh, You're going to be even happier once I tell you a little bit about this week's friend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's such a smooth segue. That was so nice. Thanks. I am really delighted by the friend that I've brought for you this week. Tell me what you've brought this week. What do you have for me? So, the friend that I have for us today is a little bit of a hometown gal. She's kind of local to you and me. She's a... Yeah, she's got a really fantastic history and a great PR record and uh, has even enjoyed some time as an environmental icon. So will you please welcome with me our guest this week, the Chesapeake Bay Monster. (gasps) Ah! (laughs) We're going to talk about Chessie. Chessie! Chessie sounds like what you would call like the devoted fan base of the Cold War musical, but it's not. It's, It's just a cool slang like... Nessie adjacent to you know all the, the people Bay who Monster. love chess enough to have a nickname all for it. All the chessies out there. Um, listen, if there's one thing I know about musical theater kids, it's that every musical has its own niche fan base and they're all obnoxious. Okay, you're not wrong. I'm allowed to say that because I'm a theater artist. So don't at me. <laughs> That's true. But anyway, but all you chessies out there, this one's for you. This one's for you. Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah, how how much do you know about the Chesapeake Bay Monster? Um, 
honestly, everything I know about the Chesapeake Bay monster can be summarized by her name, and that is to say yeah. a monster that lives in the Chesapeake Bay. That lives in the Chesapeake Bay, which is about what I knew too. And actually, the biggest reason I've stayed away from doing the Chesapeake Bay monster for this long is that I didn't think there was much more to know about her. But it turns out I was wrong. Everyone contains multitudes, and that everyone's got a story that you just probably don't know yet. Ugh, you couldn't have been more wrong. You know her name, not her story. <laughs> Okay. That's right. So uh, I was delighted to find that Chessie actually has a really fascinating history that I now have the pleasure of sharing with all of you here today. So we're going to dive right in. First, oh. we're going to start with, you know, just sort of the basics of who she is, where she comes from. Um, and then we'll get into, actually, I uh, have sort of prepared an interesting little dissertation for you oh. on why Chessie is so significant to the cryptid canon and uh, some cool information about like when she rose to popularity and some factors that I think contributed to that. I have some hypotheses, so. Okay. <laughs> this sounds like you actually yeah. like put in some thorough research on this. <laughs> Way to make me look bad. <laughs> it, honestly, it started last night, so don't feel too bad. It's okay. just, there's some really cool factors that intersect with my interests in a way that is like interesting to me. So it, it just happened to be very easy for me to really dig into. Oh, absolutely, okay. But straightforward enough, according to wikipedia.com, in American folklore, Chessie is a sea monster said to live in the midst of the Chesapeake Bay, similarly to the Loch Ness Monster, which is believed to live in Loch Ness and is known as Nessie. So, so she's a bay monster. She's not a sea monster. Just wanted to, like, very right, quickly... Correct. You know, she is a bay monster, and she's also a bay monster. <laughs> Don't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. Okay, continue. Love her. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's fair. Um, although, in fairness, Wikipedia is more peer-reviewed than a lot of sources. No, it is. You're not wrong. Anyway, over the years, there have been many alleged sightings of a serpent-like creature with flippers as part of its body. Most sighting reports describe it as a long, snake-like creature from 25 feet to 40 feet. It's said to swim using its body as a sine curve moving through the water. Aww. So there were a rash of sightings in 1977. That was like the big year for Chessie sightings. And more in the 1980s with occasional reports since then. Okay, so she peaked around the same part, the around the same time as like the birth of punk rock. <laughs> yeah, which is the most important thing. Um, although there are alleged photographs of Chessie, there is no genuine evidence of its existence. Of course, this is pretty common for you know any creature that we dive into here. No water pun intended. <laughs> yeah, speculation to explain sightings has included a mutant eel theory, large river otters prehistoric Zoogalodons, and South American anacondas escaping from 18th and 19th century sailing ships. Okay, here's the thing. Most of those mm -hmm. are just as weird as a straight-up sea monster, so I don't know why that's supposed to be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Here's the thing. Whenever people are like, it was probably a sea otter, I'm like, okay, then we've got a 30-foot sea otter that I'd like to meet. Yep. Um, I'm sorry, one more time on that mutant eel. <laughs> <laughs> Mutant Eel Theory. Mutant Eel Theory sounds like the name of a punk band. Yeah, break me off a piece of that escaped anaconda. <laughs> yeah, um, and then at least one report of the monster has been verified as a visiting manatee. Okay, that is the cutest pair of words. I know, right? Visiting manatee. Here's the thing, I'm already writing a children's book called Mr. Manatee Comes to Town in my brain. Nobody steal it. Copyright, copyright, copyright. It's um, funny that you would mention children's literature in association with Chessie. <laughs> Is there a children's book? There are two coloring books. Oh! Two official coloring books released by the Chesapeake, like, the, the local government of the Chesapeake like Bay Like, by area. the Chesapeake Bay? <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that, too. It's really, really cool. Oh. So... 
Um, basically, what you need to know about Chessie is that there are tales, and of course, this is always like something that comes up when you're researching cryptids, like tales of this area go back to the whatever hundreds. And like, okay, supposedly there have been sightings of strange river creatures in the Chesapeake Bay area since around the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Chessie herself as a specific creature that has been sighted and identified, the earliest sighting of her was from a military helicopter flying over Bush River in 1936. The helicopter's crew reported, and I quote, something reptilian and unknown in the water. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Something reptilian and unknown. Yeah. It's seen via helicopter. So an overhead viewing was like, oh, wow, there's something reptilian down there. So... Take, oh, no, totally. Take I just, that as you will. Yeah. I was just sort of rolling the text around uh, mm-hmm. and sort of luxuriating in it. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> An excerpt from a book called Weird Maryland describes a sighting where two perch fishermen named Francis Clarman and Edward J. Ward in 1943 spotted something in the water near Baltimore. Mm. The, uh, the account reads, This thing was about 75 yards away at right angles from our boat. At first, it looked like something floating on the water. It was black, and the part of it that was out of the water seemed about 12 feet long. It has a head about as big as a football and shaped somewhat like a horse's head. It turned its head around several times, almost all the way around. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I do love Chessie, but can you imagine how creepy that is? If some giant water horse snake, like, lifted its football-sized head out of the water and then just rotates it several times. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, God. I don't like this reboot of The Exorcist one bit. Yeah. That almost sounds like maybe there was some strange periscope activity happening in the water. Yeah, wait. That does sound like a periscope. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I don't really know. Then we have to account for weird periscopes in the Chesapeake Bay, so... It's fine, Alex. It was just Chessie peeking up from her underground lab. (laughs) Consider, yeah, the periscope theory is true, but does not negate the Chessie theory. She has an underground laboratory, and she scopes out the surface using a periscope. From now on, that's going to be my response to all, like, explainers in the cryptozoology field. It's like, oh, that was actually a giant river otter. I'm like, okay, cool, but the river otter was going to visit Chessie, so... (laughs) They're friends. They're friends. Daryl. Why else would it be in that specific area? Thank God. That's the thing. and That's my favorite thing when you're kind of playing on a field of hypotheticals and imaginary ideas, is you can Mm -hmm. just sort of decide what your reality is going to be. Yeah, right? It's very fun. There's and 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 from there's no there's no explanation of Chessie that negates for me the existence of Chessie. I'm just like, yes, those things can all coincide. And mm-hmm, absolutely. You said a visiting manatee. What was it visiting if not an underwater <laughs> friend? It had to be visiting something somewhere. You used the word visiting checkmate atheists. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so those are like the first rash of sightings in the 30s and 40s. Um, As I said earlier, sightings really picked up in the mid to late 70s. And that's (laughs) when we start getting like sighting after sighting after sighting after sighting after sighting, which is when it gets like really fascinating. Um, Now, before I get started on those, there is a classic photograph of Chessie. And before anybody adds me on this or finds it and gets really excited, um, there is a famous photograph of Chessie that is actually just a toy dinosaur floating in the water. No! So I do need everyone to know that. 
It's a beautiful no. photo. It's like this gorgeous backlit sunset photo that's like very clear, but you can't really see any details on the thing itself. And that's because it is a photograph of a toy dinosaur. Oh no. That reminds- Which, you know, is cool still, but- Yeah, it's like a nice photo. Um, That reminds me of the whole um scandal. And now I don't remember what the girls' names were. And I'm sure I'll talk about them on an episode at some point. I would love to do an episode on hoaxes, just on hoaxes. Um, the fairies? Are you talking yes, about the fairies? Yes, the fairies. Yeah. Because my favorite thing about that is they're literally like cardboard cutouts. They're just cardboard cutouts with like, yeah, thin strings. <laughs> they're cardboard cutouts on strings. And, and I straight up, that- later the girls were like, yeah, we actually could not believe anybody fell for that. Yes. <laughs> including including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, it's so I good. was going to say, I won't go into it because that's not what this episode is about, super detailed, but if you're not familiar, there was a case where two uh, sisters took all these photographs where they were interacting with fairies in the woods near their house, and it came out fairly, not quickly after, like, it became a huge thing. It sort of spiraled into this big deal, and everyone was talking about it, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And... Mm-hmm. Then it's it came out. Arthur Conan Doyle is a cryptid's rights ally. Like, he was super into, like, spiritualism and a lot of kind of interesting out oh, there yeah. stuff. And so it makes sense that he would want to believe in this. But it came out that they were just sort of, like, crappy cardboard cutout drawings on mm-hmm. strings. And again... Which worked because the photo quality at the time was not particularly good. I was just going to so, say... Like, they're pretty compelling photographs. The photographs are not... Not... Like, they're not ridiculous... Mm-hmm. Uh, especially given a couple things, which is one, Photoshop didn't exist yet. And yeah. so everyone was like, how do you fake a photograph? They are always true. And two, mm-hmm. again, photographic quality back then was not great. And also three, old timey people were just more gullible about things like that. Um, and I said that. And as I said that, I thought about how many times I had to explain to people that the like fictional documentary about mermaids that came out a few years ago wasn't a real documentary so never mind people are gullible and have been forever and will be for the rest of time but since we're talking about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle I would be remiss if I didn't mention something really quick which is just Mm -hmm. it's a book that every time it comes up I have to reaffirm to myself that it exists Mm -hmm. because reading it was the most buckwild experience of my life and I'm not convinced this book is real until I can Google search it and prove to myself that there are copies out there. Um, first of all, it is real. You can go on Amazon and get a copy for like a cent. So please do it. Like book club this and then tweet at me about the, your reactions to this bizarre piece of literature. There's a book called The List of Seven. Oh, written yes. By, written by Mark Frost, who incidentally co-wrote Twin Peaks. So like if you're wondering what kind of weirdness this book is, it's exactly that kind of weirdness. And literally, like, the whole thing is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle fan fiction. Ugh, amazing. (laughs) It's like this wild, like, seance-filled Victorian gothic spiritual sci-fi adventure thriller uh, about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it's just insane. I hope that if I ever die, and yes, I said if, uh, if I ever die that someone honors my legacy by writing me into a gothic sci-fi adventure with ghosts. Oh, yeah. Seriously hard same. But The List of Seven, please go read it. Please tell me it's real. Like, tweet me photographs of this book so I know for a fact that I'm not just, like, experiencing a 20 years long fever dream. Um, I had no idea what the book was about when I picked it up, and so you can imagine, like, what a trip this was. But it's... (laughs) 
It's insane. You it's can actually insane. So tell me more about Chessie. Yes, let's talk more about Chessie. So <laughs> Chessie, <clears throat> as previously stated, there were supposedly some sightings in like the early 1800s. Um, it's unclear if that is because there actually like were sightings in the area or because there was sort of a bit of a fever going on about the Gloucester sea serpent in New England in the same time period. And so people may have just been like, oh, sea serpents on the brain. And so, you know, that will tend to happen if there's like- They had that old sea monster fever. Yeah, you know, a little sea monster hysteria. Uh, it's unclear whether Chessie and the Gloucester sea serpent are related. Maybe they're cool cousins, you know, maybe they hang, maybe they're, just part of a coven of sea serpents that are looking for different places to sort of hang out and make their summer vacation homes. Yeah, you know. Carry on. Do their thing. Uh, but in any case, Chessie has had many witnesses over the years and even has a page dedicated to it on Maryland's Department of Natural Resources website. Oh, that's so good. Maryland loves Chessie, and I'm so glad. It's the best thing that Maryland's ever done. I'm trying to think about other things that Marilyn has done, but yes. But yeah, that's just kind of true, right? So thanks to cameras, Chessie's existence became more of a reality as visual evidence of sightings started to file in in the 1980s. So, you know, like I said, there were some early sightings and then we kind of lost those in the weeds for a bit. And then like late 70s, early 80s, we started getting photographs and video evidence and like more reliable accounts from multiple people confirming them. So that's when it really picked up steam. Um, in 1982, one family videotaped their sighting from their Kent Island home, which the Smithsonian then held a mini symposium on. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, they concluded that the video, along with previously unreleased images by a local woman, proved that something was alive within the Chesapeake Bay, though what it was they could not determine. <gasps> oh, I love that, that's my favorite. <laughs> so basically the Smithsonian decided like, well, it's not, the Chesapeake Bay monster, but there is something out there and we're not entirely sure what it is. So, Larry and I? Okay. All right, listen. Nothing makes <laughs> me more excited. Nothing tickles my fancy more than when, like, than when real established science type folk mm -hmm. say, there's something mysterious here and we don't know what it is. Yeah. And that piece of information about the Smithsonian, by the way, comes from the Lost Tapes segment of AnimalPlanet.com. Oh, so I know we've talked about Lost Tapes before. I just wanted to bring that up. I'm doing full, like, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons hands right now. Just sort of... Oh, good. Yes. Excellent. Exactly. Just sort of wiggling my fingers in excitement about the implications yeah. of the mysterious beings in the Chesapeake Bay. While we're talking about the Chesapeake Bay, uh -huh. I do need to talk about something. That talking about things that feel like they weren't real and didn't happen... I don't think I've told this story on this show. I really need to talk about something. I was just talking to you about the movie 8th Grade, so funnily enough, a movie that I love very much. I need to talk about something that happened when I was in 8th Grade. Okay. Uh, which is my, this is my biggest experience with the Chesapeake Bay. So, okay. In, I went to, I was very fortunate to go to like this sort of small uh, private school in, uh, Virgin, in rural Virginia, and they did a lot of stuff that was not great, but they did a lot of stuff that was really good for me. And they were really into emphasis on getting kids out in nature. Mm -hmm. So we, in sixth grade, had like a camping trip that I did not enjoy. I've talked about that before. I was terrified of sleeping in the tent at night. I heard noise all night and thought I was going to be eaten by something. Um, but we also did a trip in eighth grade where for a few days we stayed in on these like cabins on this island in the Chesapeake Bay. I don't remember which island it was, but you said island, and I my, my brain mm -hmm. just sort of lit up with memory. And 
we basically had to give up all like like we didn't weren't allowed to have cl- watches or phones because oh. we were living on island time. Nice. Yes. Um, except for like I associate island time with like Jimmy Buffett and margaritas and like yeah, same. sunshine. Same. Not like what time of year was it? It was like March. So it was still cold. Oh man. That's important for you to understand. And we were all living in this sort of like small kind of rinky-dink cabins. And it wasn't, the cabins weren't bad, but it was just the whole, the whole experience was very out of my comfort zone. I was a, uh, at that point, I, not not an indoor only child, but a child that would like to go outside only because then I could come inside and like be comfortable again. Sure, yeah. And so we did, I don't even remember what we did on all the days, but I remember vividly one day where we went out into like the swamp of the island mm-hmm. and they said, wear clothes that you don't care about ever wearing again. Because we trekked through, like, mud that was feet deep. And mm-hmm. I don't even remember what the point was. Like, we just went through the mud led by this <laughs> straight, this, like, man in his 30s who was teaching us about nature. And I remember some of the nature stuff. And I remember him talking about the mud and, like, how it's, like, similar to, like, the mud they use in spas and stuff. And I remember that... Uh, by the end of that walk through the mud, I had mud in my shoes, mud in my pants, mud in my underwear, mud in my ears, mud in my hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mud everywhere. And then we ended it by, like, by like belly flop sliding across just, like, a, a big stretch of mud, like a slip oh, hell slide. Yeah. And then we went and got to rinse off. And what we rinsed off in was dock showers that pulled water straight from the bay. And this was March. <laughs> so it was so Yikes. cold. Um, was this Kent Island? Do I you think remember? it might have been. I was, here's the thing. <laughs> I was 13 and not really paying attention to a lot of the details. Yeah, no, I, I only ask because I actually went to Kent Island um, just like two summers ago. Uh, and it was not like intentional. I wasn't setting out to Kent Island as like a destination spot. In fact, I, you weren't there because I think you had something going on. But it was over the summer and it was our friend group. And we like, yeah, we did it. We did like a daytime island time trip. I remember that. We were like, we were like, we wanted to go to the beach, but we couldn't get to like we didn't have enough time or money to make like an overnight trip to a beach and we lived just far enough away from virginia beach that it wasn't really worth the trip yeah so instead we were looking for like beaches we could get to and one of the beaches we could get to was kent island so we did this like day trip to kent island and it was really funny because (laughs) we were like so excited and so over the top and we were like yeah we're gonna meet early and take all of our sunscreen and like our swimsuits and we're gonna go get on island time and we like stopped at this place once we got there and we got boat drinks and we were like having the best time and the beach itself is like literally just the coastline like it's not a beach. much of a beach it's like there's a few feet of sand and you can like look and see like the big bridge and everything and look look across to the rest of Maryland so, yeah um but we but we did have to trek through like a park to get there like it's a like a wetlands preserve or something okay i don't think i was, it was gonna officially say a wetlands preserve but it was very swampy i was gonna say we were there did you see a stretch of swampland that perhaps gave off the aura of 20 crying eighth graders <laughs> yeah it did have a very similar energy i also i don't remember what else we did on the trip i remember I remember that changing into clean, dry clothes after that day was probably the best, one of the best sensations of my whole entire life. Isn't that a great feeling? Yeah, Yeah. it's really nice. And I remember that one day we took a trip, we took a boat and went to Tangier Island. Okay. 
Um, and there's like a ton of feral cats on that island, and that was very nice. exciting for me. Yeah, it's like an island overrun with feral cats. Um, there are more. There are. It's a really small population, so there are like way more cats than there are people. That's a whole separate thing. But well, anyway, that's fun. My main Chesapeake Bay memory is sliding through swampland, getting completely coated in mud, and then uh, shivering on the dockside as I was just drenched in like freezing cold water pulled straight from the March time Chesapeake Bay. And so that's nice. And that was what I did when I was 13. And you know what? It did build character. I'm just not sure in which direction my character was built. Not sure what character that was. Mm hmm. Um, nice. But That's pretty yeah, wild. That was, uh, that was our eighth grade trip. <laughs> it was like two days, I think. I think it was only one okay. night. I think it was like one full gotcha. day, a night, and then like part of a day, and then we went home. I, I don't even remember. It's been so long. Um, it has been 10 years, friends. But that's my little tangent. Uh, I don't know when it will ever be relevant again. But I honestly wish I had seen Chessie on that trip. That's all Honestly, I Honestly, yeah. I wish I would have seen Chessie, too, but what can you do? Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the main stretch of sightings, and then I'll get into my sort of, like, th- oh, wild yes. theorizing about why this is. Yes, please. Do you have a PowerPoint? So, yeah, I wish I did, but you know I'm a Prezi gal. Okay, true. I'm so sorry. I was, like, the Prezi queen in college. That's true. You really were. <laughs> I was. Um, so that's the whole thing. You want okay. slide transitions? We got them. Okay. Bam, bam, bam. There we go. Beta bing, beta boom. Sightings? Ahem. In 1978, witnesses claimed to have seen Chessie near Southern Maryland's Calvert Cliffs State Park and in the Potomac River in Westmoreland County, Virginia. A sketch of an unknown sea creature drawn by a boater, Trudy Guthrie, was published by the Evening Sun in September 1980. That one is the one that was later identified as a manatee from Florida. Um, Olivia, would you like to know a fun thing about that manatee? Um, of course. That manatee was nicknamed Chessie because of the whole, you know, hullabaloo surrounding it, and has yeah. actually visited the area several times since then. <gasps> oh my goodness. So Chessie the manatee did come back and visit. That's like, that's so, that's where, that's where their vacation home is. I know, it's really nice. In 1982, Robert and Karen Frew supposedly videotaped Chessie near Kent Island. So that's the video footage we were talking about earlier. Oh, nice. Yeah. Their video shows a brownish object moving side to side like an aquatic snake. (sighs) Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, Another notable sighting of the beast was in 1997 off the shore of Fort Smallwood Park, very close to shore. And then there was a recent sighting in 2014. Okay. While parked on the side of Arundel Beach Road directly next to the Magathy River when the tide was really high, quote-unquote, a Maryland resident and his friend reportedly saw Chessie less than five feet away from his car. He described it as a (gasps) snake-like creature 25 to 30 feet in length without fins, topped with a slender football-shaped head and black in color, although he could not distinguish between having scales or leathery skin. The creature Ooh. did not rise out of the water, but the head and tail end just breached the surface as it moved with a serpentine motion. The witness first questioned himself if it was two separate animals traveling behind one another, but soon realized that it was one creature because of the pattern it created on the water surface. Ah, oh, I love it. So yeah. Reader, I love her. There are no known Yeah, there are no known snakes in Maryland that get anywhere close to 25 feet long, so that's been ruled out. Yeah. Although no photo was obtained because the witness was, quote, so busy trying to figure out what the hell I was looking at that he did not think to take a picture with his cell phone, the witness was so moved that he called the Maryland Department of Natural Resources soon after the sighting. I love that. Yeah. I also 
I'm very happy to hear how much this is leaning snake as opposed to eel. After you mentioned mutated eel before, Alex, yeah, no. I was I was <laughs> apprehensive. It's very much to say the least. It's very much snake theory. Um, so let's talk about Chessie's stint as an environmental icon. I would love to hear about her activism work. Yes. Chessie uh, has actually been used by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a uh, like advocate for and icon for educational like environmental programs. Wait, so, so is she is she the Smokey the Bear of keeping the bay clean? Yeah, she's kind of the Smokey the Bear of water pollution. Oh my goodness. Okay. In 1986, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released an educational coloring book called Chessie, a Chesapeake Bay story. The coloring book focuses on the Chesapeake Bay and protecting its resources. And then a second coloring book, Chessie Returns, was published in 1991. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, Chessie became a symbol for environmental advocacy in Maryland. Illustrations of the monster in newspapers and government publications accompanying articles about environmental issues gave the monster a friendly appearance. Eric Chisholm wrote in Discovering Chessie, Waterfront, Regional Identity, and the Chesapeake Bay that the friendliness of the monster could not help but convey the sense that the bay was a harmless victim of pollution. Ugh. So... We love an environmentalist monster. Yeah, right? Don't we? Very good. So here is my theory. Mm-hmm. Sightings of Chessie picked up, like, considerably in the mid-1970s. I think 1976 is when we had, like, a really big, like, rash of sightings that started. Like, summer of 1976. Okay. So here's something I just want to list off for you real quick. Here's a list of some movies in from the 1970s, okay? Okay. 1975, Jaws. Mm. 1976, Mako, The Jaws of Death. 1978, Jaws 2. 1977, an R-rated shark movie called Tintorera. Mm -hmm. 1976, Shark Kill. 1971, Blue Water White Death. <laughs> 1979, The Shark Hunter. 1975, Shark's Treasure. Uh -huh. 1978, Bermuda Cave of the Sharks. 1979, Up From the Depths. 1977, Orca. <laughs> also in 1977, a movie just called Tentacles. Oh, no, I don't think that belongs there, Alex. <laughs> no, I think that might it's... be a different kind of movie. Yikes. Uh, but I'm sure you see what I'm getting at here, is that, like, in the mid-1970s, something that was suddenly on the minds of a lot of people was, like, the kind of creatures dwelling in the water that they had not previously been thinking about. Yeah. And that is, it's something really fascinating to me where whenever you have a sudden uptick in pop culture, like, people just start noticing things like that more, right? So I'm not saying, like, everybody saw Jaws and then they started making up stories about Chessie the Sea Monster. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm actually saying is that kind of confirmation bias where if you're thinking about something, you suddenly start seeing things everywhere, like, related to it. Like, if yeah. you're thinking about a, a certain person, like, you'll probably see their name in more places than you usually would. It's like the second you learn a new word, it starts appearing everywhere. Exactly. It's that phenomenon, and our brains definitely do that. So what I'm saying is that with the sudden rash of, like, pop culture flicks about, like, sharks and deep-sea monsters and things going on in the, like, 1970s, people were just suddenly looking for more things that were you know, squirming around in the water out there. Mm -hmm. And then like here's the other thing. Mm -hmm. oh, go ahead. I was going to say just they're primed to, to look for uh, unknown or unexplained things in the water, in these big bodies of water. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so then the other thing I want to talk about is that 
if you are, uh, well, I guess perhaps if you're not American, you wouldn't have as much of a reference point for this. But if you are, chances are that you're well aware of the huge wave of environmentalism focused media that really started happening in like the 1960s through the 1980s. Oh, when was when was Captain Planet? a huge phenomenon of Captain Planet wasn't until the 1990s because I checked that was like the first thing I looked for but actually here's something fascinating okay so general environmentalism really sort of got started as a movement in the 1960s mm-hmm. that was just kind of like people started talking about you know um, demanding a higher standard of living like the post-World War II economy really raised consciousness about the need for efficiency and for safe alternatives to thing and so that sort of went hand in hand with like reusing and recycling objects and uh, you know a consumer movements for like clean aesthetics so all of that really started to come together and Americans deciding they really wanted this like higher quality of living and this like standard of consumerism. And that is originally where environmentalist movements came out of, not out of like a concern for the environment, but you know, as with most things it arose out of a capitalist movement that then sort of raised these concerns, which fed back into itself. Uh-huh. And so generally in the 1950s, 1960s, that movement was largely focused on just sort of in general, like reusability and, uh, you know, cleaning up the areas around you. In the mid 1970s, pollution became the focus of pretty much everything that the environmental movement had to do with, specifically air pollution and water pollution. So in the mid 1970s, you started having this like real focus all of a sudden on how pollution was affecting like the water around us and specifically the toxic waste disposal like movement became a huge focus of what people were talking about and i think that really fed into this chessy thing Mm -hmm. where suddenly people were hyper aware of like what they're dumping into the water around them and since the chesapeake bay is such a massive landmark for the chesapeake bay area people were suddenly paying a lot more attention to it and the idea that like your actions might either be, (laughs) I guess there's two ways to look at it. Either you're thinking one, like we're dumping toxic waste into the water and it's creating sea monsters, (laughs) or you're thinking there are some really like wild and mysterious things out there and who knows what we might be like killing off before we even have the chance to discover it. So there's two angles of looking at that. I like both of them, although one of them is almost exactly, it's the plot of many monster movies, but specifically a recent one that I really enjoyed is the uh, Korean film, The Host. Which is not to be confused with the uh, Stephanie Meyer science fiction book. <laughs> Are you book. sure? I am very sure. Um, not that the host, but the the Korean film is a really great um, sort of combo monster movie and sort of environmentalist anti-pollution statement. It's a great movie. Nice. But that's, I love that. Also, I would love to just sort of really lean into Chessie's environmentalist um, image. And mm-hmm. I would love to start a campaign. Normally, I'm not a person who wants to use fear to motivate people, but hear me out. <laughs> uh, consider just a campaign around if you litter, Chessie will eat you. I think that's very good. I like it. Um, I'm going to spin you one more variation on that, mm-hmm. which is... You know, recently we've been getting a lot of reboots of earlier materials, specifically earlier animated material, you know, between She-Ra and, like, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, um, like, Masters of the Universe, that type of thing. Like, we're getting Mm -hmm. all these sort of hyper-specific reboots of things. And I think it's time for a Captain Planet reboot that is just (gasps) about Chessie. I think we need a Chessie-centric Captain Planet reboot. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Is she Captain Planet, Alex? 
Yes, Chessie is Captain Planet. Okay. Boot, um, because it's a feminist retelling of... Oh, wow. And you know what? I think that it's really important for all children to grow up seeing strong women depicted in media fighting for causes they believe in. And who is that if not Chessie the Chesapeake Bay Monster? Exactly. I can think of nobody better suited to the role. Um, I would expect I would accept that, or I would also accept like a highly stylized genre film that's like a '70s disaster movie redux uh, that, that like you know really leans into the aesthetic and sort mm-hmm. of the warm tones and like slightly off coloration and like big sunglasses and action sequences. Um, that's like about two people that have to buddy cop up and like save Chessie from some environmental disaster. Oh, that's so good. Okay, I was worried you were it's gonna. It's like make- Spike Lee's gonna direct it and it's gonna star uh, <laughs> Owen Wilson and Don Cheadle. Al- Alex, I don't understand, or I don't know if you understand how excited I just got. <laughs> That's my pitch. Somebody make me a poster, please. I want to see. I want to see Don Cheadle save <laughs> Chessie the Chesapeake Bay monster. Oh my god! Just yeah. before he retires from the uh, the fish and game department. Oh yeah, and like the outfits are going to be so choice in this movie too, which is the other thing I'm really excited for. And because I'm tired of cop movies, they're going to be park rangers, okay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like it's. It's, listen, it's leaning into the genre and the style of the time, and so it is definitely an homage, but it's also, like, an updated retelling, you know? We don't mm-hmm. need to see more cops. What we need to see are strong role models, good authority figures who are really out here working for the people, mm-hmm. and um, I think we all know that those are park rangers, and it's going to be just these two park rangers, one of whom is, uh, you know, kind of plays by the book and is, you know, just before uh, collecting a, a government pension for his many years of service in Don the Cheadle. fish and fish and game department, exactly. And the other one's kind of a hotshot who thinks that he doesn't have to listen to all of the environmental regulations and is going to learn a powerful lesson about friendship. And it's Owen Wilson. <laughs> and it's Owen Wilson. And the movie teaches young people um, that they can have really cool nonviolent action sequences and also that stewardship of our ecology is very important. Absolutely. And and that we should always look out for our giant underwater monster friends. That's right. You got to look out for them. They're looking out for you. They're looking out for you every single day. If you only Chessie knew, would take a bullet for you. <laughs> if you only knew what she goes through every single day down by the bay where the watermelons grow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, anyway, so that was a little bit of a diversion. But that's my theory about Chessie. I think that the reason the Chessie phenomenon became really big is because of the confluence of factors. Much like a bay is a confluence of waters. Wow. Oh, you brought it all together so smoothly. Really tied that Thank bow you. up real nice. <laughs> yeah. I really love thinking about sort of the broader sort of cultural landscape that leads to phenomenon like this it makes me very happy and it reminds me of a lot of um really interesting readings i've done about the origins of different myths and stories and urban legends too and it's not quite the same because chassis as far as i can tell is not really the object of fear thankfully for the most part just kind of of no definitely not either fascination or actually outright celebration thankfully Mm -hmm. as she deserves um but There is something really cool to be said for how the circumstances of an area and a group of people lead to stories growing or even just to people like you like you pitched noticing things that they wouldn't have before. But it reminds me of how um, I've talked about this before on here, probably, but I I think about it all the time. But it reminds me of how um, 
Like, for example, a lot of classic scary stories coming out of uh, the UK Mm -hmm. are very much based in urban life and cities. And it's because if you sort of look back at sort of the recent times, and not that recent, but like Victorian times, where all the fear and the suffering and the bad stuff was happening was in the cities because London was just basically like a pit of disease and death. Oh, yeah. I mean, to talk about environmental fiction, you know, one of the greatest environmental epics of all time is The Lord of the Rings because Mm -hmm. it's literally a story about how like these people from the countryside have to fight to protect their way of life from being overtaken by this horrible industrialization that's like sweeping the land and killing all the trees and like polluting their resources. Yeah, actually. That's literally like a very common reading of the Lord of the Rings. And it's one that is confirmed through like Tolkien's letters and everything. Like he literally prior to writing, um, like prior to writing Lord of the Rings in many occasions would refer to like the cities of England as like the Blacklands in his letters to friends. Like that is a mm-hmm. that's a very accurate interpretation of that piece of work. Hey, um, do you remember speaking of things that are about pollution, this is there was like a resurgence in the nineties of anti pollution and environmentalist media. Do you remember Fern Gully? Do I remember Fern Gully? I do remember Fern Gully. Where Tim Curry is literally a pollution monster. Talk, talk about a movie with like a wildly all-star cast that somehow just kind of faded into obscurity. Honestly, okay, I think about the song Toxic Love all the time. Ferngully is a Buck Wild movie. Um I do love it. It is completely insane. Like I'm sorry, I'm gonna lose my mind. If you look up uh, Ferngully, like if you Google it, I wanted to make sure I was right about the year it came out. It came out in 1992. Um, and there are two audience reviews, and one of them is just like a movie about how it's good mm-hmm. and, and it's it's good at showing the damage done by the environment. And one of them is by a person with a profile picture of a dog, and it says, this movie should be rated PG. The language in this movie is extremely cringy, as the human says, bodacious babe. <laughs> yeah, it this is. This movie also, I'm sorry, wait. This movie also includes animals that make you uncomfortable when and they sing. Their voices are so weird that you result when you hear them. Please do not show your kids this movie. They will be traumatized and fearful of the characters. Honestly, that's not an unfair reading of Fern Gully. <laughs> no, it's not that wrong. Fern Gully just... is a movie that, like, kind of falls into the Road to El Dorado camp, where it's, like, an uncomfortably sexy movie for kids. Oh, yeah, it's definitely, like, not really for... It that is part's not, not for children. Right. I, yeah. but what I'm saying... Like, there is straight up a scene, I'm sorry, but there is straight up a scene where, like, the little fairy protagonist and her, like, lumberjack-turned-fairy-protagonist boyfriend, like, go into this magical little flower cave, and then it just smash cuts to, like, several hours later. Mm, we know what happens in flower caves. <laughs> we do know what happens in the flower cave. But what happens in the flower cave stays in the flower cave also, so we don't yeah, talk, we're not about talk about it. talk about it. But uh, to bring it back to Chessie, I genuinely believe... As kind of cheesy and on the nose as a lot of the, like, especially mid-90s environmentalist kids entertainment was, I would love to see a resurgence in some of that. I really think Mm -hmm, that there's something to be said for the villain of a film for children, Ferngully being my example here, one of the villains being, obviously, Tim Curry as a pollution demon or whatever he is, but also is literally an evil corporation that is damaging the environment Mm -hmm. with greed. And I'm like, yeah. hmm, that seems like a timely message. 
because as I've talked about on here before, it, I think something that is really important and, and unfortunately gets left out of a lot of like environment like basic environmental discourse is the fact that personal responsibility is very important, but it is not the thing that's going to actually turn this around. Yeah. Personal responsibility is like an ideological responsibility, right? Like taking personal accountability for the environmental decisions that you make in your everyday life is important because it's about you like committing to a certain level of conscientiousness Mm -hmm. and deciding what things are valuable to you and reflecting those values in like your purchases and the ways that you interact with corporations, which ideally will then be pressured to take note of that and change their own behaviors. Exactly. On the whole, those corporations are responsible for like an alarming percentage of what actually happens. And even if every single person took personal responsibility that didn't somehow affect the corporations, like it wouldn't matter because that overwhelming percentage would totally outweigh any of the good that individuals will do. Mm -hmm. But it is important to participate in that process because participation in that process is what then puts the pressure on corporations to make those changes that need to be made. Exactly. That having been said, you're not like a total failure if you can't suddenly radicalize your life because there are a lot of very realistic factors affecting the way that you have to interact Mm -hmm. with the world around you. So like, if you can't immediately go sustainable and only use cloth bags in your shopping and like never touch plastic again like listen you gotta live mm-hmm. you gotta function love yourself and like eating is more important than making you know ethical decisions about that kind of thing I yes. know people who and I've been there myself who are like well I have to make this ethical decision or like my options are either to like you know not participate in the system at all and like risk not taking care of myself or only make decisions that are slightly less responsible than I'd like them to be it's like clearly do that okay mm-hmm. don't feel like you have to suddenly eschew everything that brings you happiness and joy because it feels morally and like reprehensible that's not really a a viable way to participate in the system and that's kind of the myth that framing all this discourse around just personal responsibility creates which is the fact of the matter is Mm -hmm. as much as it's good for individual citizens to make sure they're doing their part and recycle and all that good stuff the way that actually like climate change and pollution are genuinely going to be addressed in a meaningful way is to hold corporations accountable and force them to make reforms to the effect that they're having on the environment. Because it is, that is like a drop in the ocean in terms of the Mm -hmm. one individual's impact. So Chessie, I think if anything, if I know anything about bay monsters and just sea monsters and just, you know, our beautiful big monster gals in general, I feel like she stands for self-care. So I feel like I'm not speaking too out of turn to say that Chessie probably stands for not littering, loving yourself, and holding Mm -hmm. billionaires accountable. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I bet tracks. I think that's exactly what Chessie would want. Let's make a coloring book about it. I was just about to say, let's make a coloring book where Chessie holds billionaires accountable. Fun fact. Fun fact, actually. Uh Um, When I was on the robotics team in high school, one of the things that I did, because my role on the robotics team was mostly, like, um, public outreach and, like, um, activism. Like, I was was more involved with the side of the team that was responsible for, like, talking about our achievements and getting people involved in the community and, like, raising money so that we could keep doing great outreach activities or whatever. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I did, like, a pet project that I took on was we made a coloring book about our, like, team and our robot. And, like, we took it around to, like, kids' events and children's hospitals with our cool robot that like that is made friends with the kids so, so cute it was really fun yeah so there's somewhere i have a copy of it of this like coloring book that i made for kids but yeah coloring books are great and i think that it's time for a chessy coloring book 
Another one. Another the one. Threequel. I, the threequel. I was just about to say, it's the rule of threes. It's the Chesapeakequel. <laughs> oh no. So there's <laughs> there's Chessie and Chesapeake Bay story, and then there's Chessie returns, and then there's Chessie three, the Chesapeakequel. I don't, I don't hate it. I'll tell you, I don't, <laughs> I don't hate it as much as I hate Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel, the Squeakquel. So yeah. I think that that's a good place to start. I think maybe you should <laughs> workshop it a little bit, maybe punch it up a little bit, and get back to me in a couple weeks, and we'll see how all we right, feel. All right, fine. My I people, can do that. my people will call your people, and they usually do. They usually do. And by my people, I mean me, and by your people, I mean you. And by call, I mean text. (laughs) So, uh, same time next week? Oh, of course, every week. Um, Excuse me, let me just take a big, long sip of my coffee that I'm not allowed to name because they haven't given us money. (laughs) Mmm, this delicious unnamed coffee. That, okay, I'm sorry for, I'm not, actually, because what is this show if not information sort of cushioned by many, many, many tangents, just sort of wrapped all together in, like, a beautiful layered sort of casserole, Uh, Mm -hmm. but... One of my favorite things in the whole world is uh, when movies or TV shows don't have brand deals, and so they have to basically just kind of generically, like, refer to things. Uh-huh. Um, particularly on cooking shows, like Chopped. My favorite thing in the whole yes. world is when Chopped can't name a product, so they have to, they can't say Oreos, so they have to ha- say, like, sandwich cookies, or, like, they can't say Gatorades, so they have to say sports drink, and it makes me laugh every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, they can't say stuff. right Krispies, so it's like crispy rice cereal, <laughs> crispy rice treats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it, um, I love that so much, and I really kind of wish there is an online site, like an online grocery store, that is really called Brandless. That I do respect what they're doing, which is they're kind of mm-hmm. like getting rid of like people paying for brands as opposed to for products. But the only problem is because it's brandless like that all of the products are called things like that and it's really hard for me not to look at it and laugh and not laugh because it's like mm-hmm. hmm i think i would like to buy some chocolate puffed rice cereal i yeah but that's how i have to refer to my coffee from now on on this show until we get that sweet sponsorship that's fair yeah understandable um so i think that's gonna do us for today let's go ahead and wrap up with some post-show announcements you don't have any survival tips for Chessie, who doesn't do any harm to who anyone? Who wants to survive Chessie? She does nothing no, wrong. I, I I have tips for Chessie to survive, which is, like, take mm-hmm. care of yourself first and foremost. Um, make decisions that are going to help you function well enough to keep participating in the years-long fight against the system. Because if you can't survive today, then you're never going to help make the changes of tomorrow. And... Um, Take care of your local parks and the habitats around you so that creatures like Nessie can keep having a wonderful place to live. Nessie and Chessie. Also, just like specifically a survival tip, both for you and for Chessie herself, uh, don't dump your garbage in the Chesapeake Bay. Thanks. Yeah, don't. Thanks so much. (laughs) So I guess our our survival tip is a very long game survival tip, which is take care of your planet. (laughs) Yeah, help the planet so we can all collectively survive. So we can all survive the real monster of climate change. Man, this episode was not subtle. I like that you you say that as if implying uh, previous episodes have been subtle, such as the Yule Cat yeah, episode no, really where we haven't. talked about how it should eat billionaires. But I'm just always delighted when something becomes like a canonized part of my brand. Um, I am actually this is relevant. The just this past week, I received a really really lovely gift in the mail from a Crypto Keeper listener who 
Um, occasionally, people will like at me on Twitter or whatever and ask like if they can have my mailing address to send me something that thought of me. And I'm always usually I'm like, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, but one of our listeners sent me this great little patch that I'm going to put on my denim vest. And it just says like National Parks Geek on it. And I've, I've never oh, felt that's so, so cute. That reminds me actually yeah, really um, that we have someone in our Twitter DMs that we need to get back to about mailing addresses. I was going to talk to you about that after we got Oops. off the mic. Okay. But that's fine. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we took we, uh, we don't, like, have a public P.O. box listed anywhere, but generally if uh, someone reaches out and wants to send, like, a craft or uh, something, like a letter. Um, yeah, we've had a few people send us really beautiful things. We got some um, really gorgeous prints, like some cryptid prints um, from a phenomenal artist just over the holidays sometimes. And I'm never really sure if people want me to shout them out on air or not. So if you do, um, let me know and I will next time. But... Uh, some really beautiful, like, art prints. We've gotten some, like, great little knickknacks or little drawings or postcards or things and, you know, sometimes little little stuff. But it's always a real joy, so thank you so much. Alex, we got letters. We get letters from Lloyd. Oh, yeah. Lloyd is a very awesome uh, younger listener that has sent us a couple lovely handwritten letters, and I meant to, uh, oh, I wanted to just so shout good. him out because it's very nice uh, and it makes makes me happy. It's really fantastic. So, yeah, those are, are a real winner, too. I love it. Um, but, yeah, that's just a separate thing. So if you have something like that and you want to reach out, like, feel free to shoot an email or a Twitter DM or something um, because it's 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 really, really nice and uh, and is always very appreciated. But, uh, yeah, there's, like, there's no better feeling, honestly. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I have um, a little, like, art, uh, a little, like, square art box uh, with the Nessie drawing on my desk that I'm looking at right now. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. But it's very good. We love our sea monster queens. Uh, we we love them. There are they are the only good thing in the world sometimes perhaps even. <laughs> but anyway, thank you everyone for your support. Thank you be that uh, financial be that talking about the show on your social media, be that just listening every week or telling your friends about it, telling your enemies about it, telling your parents about it. I don't know. Um, Somebody like that. Anybody yeah, just going outside and yelling to people on the street. Have you ever listened also to good? the Cryptic yeah, Keeper? Just shout. Shout to the heavens. <laughs> Shake your fist and shout to the heavens about the Cryptid Keeper podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just very glad I get to come back to a sort of safe and familiar space every week to talk about unfamiliar and unexplained things and uh yeah it's it's nice to have it and i hope it's nice for all of you out there as well uh to have this you always will have this space to return to uh even like at such a point that like when episodes aren't coming out and stuff the space is always here you know what i'm saying Absolutely, 100%. Um, Speaking of both support and episodes, just a real quick shout out. We are 89% of the way to our Patreon goal. Oh, yeah, which is wild. So that's pretty dope. Which involves... Yeah. uh, Uh, In case you missed this, mm -hmm. yeah, when we reach our next funding goal on Patreon, which, again, we are 11% away from, so every dollar helps. Uh, But when we reach that point, we are going to plan our first Cryptid Keeper live show, which... uh, you know, obviously will be recorded for everyone else to enjoy, but you will get to hear that fun, fresh content in your ears and maybe in your eyes if you live somewhere close to wherever we're able to make it happen. If we surpass that funding goal, who knows? Maybe we'll get more than one live show, but we would really, really love for that to happen in 2019. So think about it. Just think about it. Just think about it. Just think about it, you know? Just think about it. You know what? Maybe you let that rattle around in your brain a little bit and then uh, sleep on it. You know, <laughs> get back to us. So uh, thank you as always to our audio wizard Val Patron and our in-house composer Andrew Giada who wrote our theme music. 
and performs into the Lunar Light Network for being our uh, home away from home, for being our internet site, um, and also... Our pod home. Yeah, I know you were going to shout out Andrew for performing our theme music live every week, which I do love. It's really, really excellent of him to do that. It's amazing that he does that. That's incredible, honestly. What a gift. He never sleeps. He never... He has... Andrew has not slept in over a year. <laughs> but you can tell he's getting really good at it, right? Oh, yeah. He's getting so like every time. I feel like every time I cue it up, it just sounds smoother and smoother. So, like, wow. Amazing. I feel like he rushed it last time. <laughs> maybe a little bit. Could you take the tempo a little bit slower this week, Andrew? Yeah, maybe just chill it out a little bit. Relax. You don't have to impress anybody. You can also, if you uh, haven't heard enough of our voices doing stuff and making uh, monster stories happen, you can find uh, Horror Borealis on the One Shot Network releasing... Finally, to the public. And if you can't get enough of it on there and you want to access the entire backlog, it is available on our Patreon. So you can access episodes all the way up to the most recent ones. And yeah. And if you want to be ahead of the curve, so to speak, on the episodes that are releasing publicly. But you can also, if you don't have the, if you either don't want to do that or don't have the funds or whatever, (laughs) for whatever reason, you can find the episodes releasing weekly. They release on Tuesdays. On Tuesdays. Tuesdays, perfect. On the One Shot Network. There are advantages to listening publicly. For example, I've gotten way better at audio editing. So I do go back and I clean them. Each and every single one of them gets a second loving pass by me before they're released to the public. And then also you get to hear my voice on the mid-roll ad. So if you're really just starved to hear me talk to you personally, then Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess that's a good way to do it. If you'd like to hear me bringing some aggressive vocal fry... Uh, it's pretty good. And hear me do swears that I'm not allowed to do on this podcast because it doesn't have an explicit rating. And we have children who listen. Da, da, da. But I do many swears on Horror Borealis. Yeah, no holds barred up there in the frontier. <laughs> it's too cold. We have to swear. <laughs> that makes a certain sort of sense. Swearing actually, I should not be injecting a fun fact at 58 minutes in. Swearing is good for you if you are in pain. It there is it has been shown scientifically that it releases endorphins and can help with pain management. If the, the, like when oh. when you swear when you're injured, like it helps. Uh-huh. It releases endorphins. It actually does help to curse when you well, stub your toe or there you have it friends so let yourself kids who are listening don't tell your parents you got that from us oh yeah please don't if you're if you're not supposed to curse at home then tell don't. him bill nye sent you tell him don't you dare smear his name leave him out of this i think bill nye would want to be part of the cool subversive toe stubbing movement <laughs> so anyway thank you for listening thank you for being here with us and um as always we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there.